You know, I'm not even sure that I was old enough where I was supposed to be watching the movie. But uh, mom was out, and it was dad and son night, so it was pizza and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I said, okay. Because dad was convinced that it was time for me to watch one of his favorite westerns. And it was a good movie, and I, you know, I'm sure there were a lot of things that passed over me because I was like 11, and so there's a lot in that movie, having gone back and watched it later, that I was like, wow, you showed that to me when I was 11. Um, but, but I remember the ending. And I remember being so confused by the ending. Because here's Paul Newman and Robert Redford, and they are, they're pinned down by these Bolivian mercenaries that have tracked them down. Both of them are shot up. And Redford looks at Newman and says, you know, when this is all over, I think we probably ought to go to Australia next. And he goes, okay. And then they run out from cover, guns blazing, and then it just stops. The movie gets over. I look at my dad, and I'm like, so... Did they make it to Australia? You know, and dad's like, what do you think? And I'm like, I don't know. That's what the story's supposed to be for. The story is supposed to tell me whether they make it to Australia or not. Sooner or later, we all have these times where we go to the, where we go to the movie theater, or we read a book, or, or, or some, you know, TV show. I mean, TV shows are now capitalizing on getting to the end and making us say, wait, what? What, what, what are you doing? Wait, no. What? Endings that, that, that are abrupt or endings that have a sudden change, they, they cue us in. They, 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 they make us confused, but in a good way. Because they make us examine what's going on and say, okay, is what I saw what I think I just saw? Is what I experienced what I, I think I just experienced? I have found sometimes it gets a little unsettling because you realize that there is no point to th- to like a movie or a story ending abruptly. In fact, sometimes I've, I've seen that, that um, a lot of times in modern movies, I, I saw one recently where a guy was right in the middle of explaining something and he was getting ready to, to really just actually explain what was going on and mid-sentence it just goes and just goes to the credits. And I was like, great. You know what that means? That means that the writers could not figure out a meaning for this and they just were like, I'm going to tell you what this means. And great. Thanks, guys. I want my money back. Um, but sometimes there is a reason. Sometimes there is a meaning. Sometimes there is a point. And our reading of the resurrection this morning in Mark reminds me of one of those movies. It's unsettling, it is unexpected. Frankly, it makes us stop and say, wait, what? What just happened there? As the credits roll. And without sidetracking too much, I want to start with something this morning, okay? Because if you look in your Bibles this morning, in Mark, and, and, and you're looking in a Bible that's doing any justice to biblical scholarship, you have, you have a big line there. After Mark 16, verse 8, 
that says, the oldest and earliest manuscripts do not contain Mark 16, 9 through 20. You know, in really nice, small print, you know, so that maybe you miss it. I don't know. But that's a big deal for me. That's a, that's a big deal for me because what it, what it tells me is that there's more than one ending to my gospel there, okay? And I'm not trying to break anybody's faith this morning. This is Easter. We're supposed to, like, buoy your faith, okay, right? Okay, but I do want to challenge you with something here, okay? Is that, is that there's this longer reading in 16, 9 through 20, and then there's a shorter one in our reading today, and the reason that we know this is that the most ancient documents that we have of Mark, and this gospel is one that we probably have more earlier copies of than any other manuscript in the Bible. <coughs> All the older ones end at verse 8. And it's almost like in the later version, some scribe decided to pull like a George Lucas and say, I bet with some rewriting I could make this better. Okay. <coughs> I don't know if that's the case, but in, evidently that George Lucas, you guys must be either not Star Wars fans or or really, really loyal to George Lucas. I don't know. One of the two. Um, so... But I don't want this to break our understanding of Scripture as authoritative and true, but what I do want to raise is the fact there's not a great conspiracy we're undercovering here. And yes, we should read the Bible with suspicion. Okay? Oh, now I got your attention. Okay. What? Wait, what? No, no, no. We should read the Bible with suspicion, but we should read the Bible with suspicion that I automatically understand what's going on. My suspicion shouldn't be in the people that wrote it. My suspicion should be in myself that I can just automatically understand stuff. And if I come up against something that makes me question, I should ask questions, but I should ask questions with the assumption that, hey, you know what? I am over 2,000 years removed from this, and this is in a completely different culture than me, and I may not actually understand what's going on, and I probably ought to find out. And this is one of those times where we come up against a question and it doesn't make sense. And if I approach it from the assumption that I don't know what's going on, there are some really, really interesting things that open up. So it's a great question for us to ask. What is going on here? Why does this gospel end so abruptly? And why does it end the way that it does with people leaving in fear, not telling anybody anything? There are three possibilities of what's going on here, okay? First gospel isn't really supposed to end here, okay? And that could be valid because it ends really abruptly. And in fact, in the original language, it ends with the word for. And I'm sure that is just killing anybody that is grammar inclined at all in the church today, okay? You can't end a sentence like that, much less a story. When is an ending not an ending? When a man rises from the dead and something ends mid-sentence with for. And you go, what's going on there? And there's all kinds of wild speculation that comes from that, okay? Everything from Mark being martyred in the middle of writing the book, which I guess could be a possibility, to um, some elusive missing last page, and that kind of inspires all the Indiana Jones, you know, like raiders of, like, the missing gospel page in me, okay? But I guess that I guess that's a possibility. But think about this: the problem is the problem with that idea is that this word "for" is attached to the word "afraid." And here's the thing: all throughout Mark, there is this nameless, unattached fear that people experience when they come into contact with the power of God. Jesus 
calms the storm, and the disciples are terrified. They're afraid. Jesus walks out to them on the water, and the disciples are terrified. Okay. Transfiguration happens, and the, everybody that's there is? Yes. Okay. It happens all the way through Mark, and so... Why wouldn't they be terrified when they come into the biggest expression of Jesus' power? And it's completely unexpected. Yes, I know he's been telling them all the way through the gospel, but it's still completely unexpected for them. Why would they not be afraid? See, it, it matches too much with Mark's gospel to be an accident. It matches too well for him to just have been like, oops, I guess I'm out of material. You know, I, no. No, 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 no. This is, it's perfect. It's a perfect ending. And you know what? It might have been that Mark did finish the gospel, but he wasn't familiar enough with the details of the resurrection accounts of the time in order to record them. That's another theory that's out there. So rather than record something that isn't true, or that he's afraid might not be true, he just kind of ties the narrative off and gives this general shot of the empty tomb and trusts that his audience knows the rest. And again, the problem is, is that this leaves the door open to a lot of unfounded speculation but it's also a bit strange since where we've dated Mark, there's also really detailed resurrection accounts happening in like the letters to the Corinthians and the letters to the Galatians. It's all happening at the same time, so that doesn't make any sense either. So if we rule those two things out, it's not that Mark doesn't know what happened in the resurrection, and it's not that he just decided to stop midstream or he got stopped midstream in his thought, then there's only one reason left. Mark ended it this way on purpose. And he knew exactly what he was talking about with the resurrection. And if that's the reason that he did it, then he's got something that he wants to tell us. And there's a reason why he ends it the way it does. And that's what I want to share with you today. It's important for us to note first when we look at the story of the resurrection that Mark has made a big deal about being very, very explicit about Jesus' burial. In the end of chapter 15, we have a respected member of the Jerusalem Council. We have an extended conversation between a Roman procurator and a Roman centurion. And we have a group of Galilean women. And all three of them are bearing witness to the finality of Jesus' death and the finality of the burial. Okay, There is no question that he's dead. There's no getting around that like, well, maybe he was just, maybe he was just unconscious. You know, or maybe he wasn't really up there. You know, all of these all of these things that kind of float around, you know, during the time that Mark's writing his gospel. Okay? There's no question. He is placed in the tomb and the stone is put in its place, and it underscores the fact that on Friday everyone thinks that this is the end of the story. Jesus is thoroughly dead. And at least in a context of human understanding and experience, he is irrevocably buried and he is irrevocably done. Okay? The Holy One of God gets sacrificed as a ransom for many. That's what's been going, that's what he said was going to happen, and that's what's happened, and it's gone all the way through to the end. And his death tears apart the physical and the spiritual barrier, the curtain that is separating the dwelling place of God and all of humanity. And this is where the credit should roll. And Sunday morning then, I almost imagine like if we were sitting in a movie theater, okay? 
This would be the part where people have already kind of started getting up and filing out the door, right? You know, they're 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 you know tossing their pop. If they're nice, they're tossing their popcorn in the in the wastebasket. If they're not, they just left it for the people to clean up. Um, you know, and and they're walking down the stairs and they're walking out. And they're, they're, they're talking about how sad of an ending this Jesus story has had. And, 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 and all of a sudden, everybody stops because the credits just stopped. And all of a sudden, you got another, you know, it's one of those ones that they sneak in at the end in the middle of the credits, right? And everybody stops and goes, oh, wait, 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 wait. You know, hey, get back in here. Okay. And so they're all in the aisles and they're like, what is going on? Okay. And Sunday morning comes and these three women that show up are named because of their connection to Jesus, okay? These are not three random people. Mary, his mother. Salome, who is the mother of James and John, who are two of his closest disciples. And Mary Magdalene, who has been one of his most devoted followers, okay? These are not three random people. These are people that are the closest to Jesus, all right? We need to realize, though, that they don't show up with great expectations, the simple fact is that the death was tragic, the burial was hastily assembled to commence before the Sabbath begins, and there's still work to be done in order to finish the job. And so, these expensive spices are brought, smelling much like the bottle that was broken over the head of the one who now lies buried behind the stone. And the same women who saw him go into the tomb come to perform one last act of service before it's all over. And the idea is that they are not expecting any kind of plot twist right now. And it's underscored by the conversation that they have. It's not, the big topic is how are we going to get the big stone out of the way? Who's going to move the stone? You know, and, and obviously, you, you know, you kind of go, well, did you think better than that? No, Mark is, Mark is actually setting this up. Who will move the stone out of the way? Well, what they find out is that someone already has moved the stone out of the way. That predictable ending gets upturned and put on its head because of the power of God and what God is doing. There is no explanation for how the stone gets rolled away. And Mark just kind of makes it clear that this same unseen holy one who sent Jesus in the first place is responsible for moving the stone. And again, he is doing things that are mysterious and great and holy and beyond understanding. And all of a sudden this starts to look like something very different and very unsettling. All of a sudden, the ending isn't the ending. Something else is starting, and the women are very, very confused as they try to figure out what is going on. And curiosity and apprehension lead them into the tomb where a messenger waits for them. He's dressed in white. He's not Jesus, that much is certain. And we don't know who he is. But to call him an angel, or at least a messenger of God, is very, very appropriate because the message that he delivers is that the heart of Mark's gospel, he is not here. He is risen. If we expect this tragedy to come to a natural end, we're wrong. And remember, I, I talked about last week that, that Mark puts his gospel as a tragedy where like the death is unstoppable. It, it, is, it is necessary, it is going to happen, and whether you realize it or not, it's coming. And the reader knows that it's coming. All the way. And then, right here at the end, Mark 
takes that whole narrative and twists it up on its head because all of a sudden the tragedy turns into triumph somehow. And so if we're looking among the dead for a crucified Jesus, we are looking in the wrong place because he's not there. And the second half of the message holds two really great insights. First, Jesus has gone ahead of the disciples out into the world in Galilee. The place where he laid is empty. Any quest for us to confine Jesus to a manger or a rabbi or a cross or a tomb is absolutely futile. If we try to do it, we're going to be frustrated. You want to know why? Because Jesus is not in the manger Jesus is not in the teachings. Jesus is not on the cross. Jesus is not in the tomb. You want to know where Jesus is? He's on the loose. Look out. He's out in front of you. He's out doing. He's out redeeming. He's out living the resurrected life. He is two steps ahead of you on the move out in Galilee. Think on that for just a second. Like if, like, if I just stop the sermon there, that's enough, okay? Like, because Mark doesn't tie this thing up with a nice little ending where Jesus ascends into heaven where he's nice and far away from us. Uh-uh. You want to know where heaven is? It's Galilee. It's Judea. It's Samaria. It's the ends of the earth. It's wherever Jesus happens to be. He's out on the loose. And you want to know where heaven is. It's not just some far off place that's way far away from you and I. It's wherever Jesus is present, redeeming. That's where he is. That's where we need to go. So, I mean, so first off, that's that's an amazing revelation for us as a reader. Jesus is not corralled off in some safe little celestial palace where he's like, you know, Sitting with a harp waiting for you and me or something, okay? That's not what he's doing. He is outdoing the business of redemption. And the instruction is go join him. But the other insight with that is this. Go tell Peter and the disciples. Peter's denial is the ultimate betrayal. His actions are a condemnation. But Mark is hinting that this perpetual failure and this abandonment that the disciples continue to go through again and again and again, all the way through, even to the end, where they all leave him. That's the last thing we, that's the last time we see the disciples is them all leaving him. They never come back in Mark's gospel. Not in the short ending, they don't. Okay? And yet, Mark hints that that's not the end. Our failure is not the end of the story. Our failure to believe, our failure to trust, our failure to obey, our failure to be everything that we ought to be. God doesn't care about that part. That's not the end of the story for us. And I don't know what kind of weight that should take off your shoulders, but I hope it takes some weight off your shoulders. God loves you in spite of your failures. God loves you in spite of the ways that you're broken. God loves you in spite of the ways that you don't measure up. And God just keeps giving you chances. And we'll just keep giving you chances. And we'll just keep pouring his grace out on you because he loves you so much. 
just want you to respond. The tragedy of the gospel is injected with hope for others, not just for Jesus. It isn't the end for him, and it's not the end for the disciples. No matter how badly we have misunderstood or betrayed or abandoned him, this is the gospel. It is good news. And so we have redemption, and we have expectation. Jesus is out on the loose in Galilee, and we're all primed for that moment when Jesus is going to be revealed again to the disciples. And then Mark's last verse drops like a bomb on those expectations. Fear wins out instead of hope. Doubt wins out instead of belief. And even these three significant women, Jesus' own mother, the mother of two of his closest disciples, and probably the most devoted disciple that he has in his entourage, all leave confused and afraid and silent. Cut to black, lights up, and now we're even more confused when we file out of the theater than we were before. Okay, we've completely forgotten about the popcorn that we left in the aisle. And, and now we're really asking, like, so what was the point of that? Because, like, the cross didn't tie the story up, and now the resurrection doesn't finish the story either. So what's the point? To find the purpose, not just in Mark's empty tomb, but in the Easter story, we've got to go back to the beginning. The very first verse in the Gospel of Mark provides the framework for this whole story. Mark's gospel starts as abruptly as it ends. In chapter 1, verse 1, he says this. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And this tells me two very, very important things to frame all this around. First, this is a story of good news, like I said. Okay? The entire story is written like a tragedy. But we should be expecting the surprise ending. Because this isn't a story about bad news. This is a story about good news. But even more important than this, Mark says his whole narrative is the beginning. Everything that he has talked about is the start. God's got a whole set of sequels lined up. That's the point. Okay? And if we are to be believed, the sequels are actually even more powerful. (laughs) You know, whereas usually, you know, you get into the second and the third one, you're going, oh, we should have just stopped with the first one. In God's story, the next episodes get better and better and better. Do you want to know why? Ah. It's because of who's left to tell the story. I mean, there's got to be more because here we are 2,000 years later. We're in a church. We are remembering his resurrection. It can't actually have been that these ladies leave and they're afraid and they don't tell anybody anything because somebody had to say something somewhere, right? Otherwise, we aren't here. So who's left to tell the story? Who's going to bring the good news of the resurrection in this narrative? Because there's nobody left to do it. Jesus isn't there. Tomb's empty. Disciples aren't there. They've all deserted and abandoned. They run away. They don't even know that there's redemption yet. They think the story ended on Friday. 
The messenger has said his bit. He fades in the background. He's not around anymore. The women are gone, scared and afraid. You feel the tension, right? Who's left to tell the story? There's nobody remaining. Is there? Oh, wait. There is somebody left. There's one person who's witnessed the tragedy of Jesus' death, the finality of his burial, and the surprise, redemptive twist of the empty tomb. It's you and me. It's the reader. Remember how we said last week in a tragedy, everybody's rendered dead or gone except that one person who survives to tell the tale? Mark takes everybody else out of the story before the ending, so at the ending, there's only one person left to proclaim the story of the resurrected Jesus. And it's the reader. It's you. It's me. We're the ones who are left to tell the story. I mean, that's the point of Easter anyway, right? It's not to observe history. It's not for us to look backward and say, oh, wasn't that interesting? Or wasn't that profound? Wasn't that meaningful? That's, that's not the point of Easter, is it? The point of Easter is about owning the story of the resurrection. It's about taking that story forward. Mark doesn't leave Jesus in the tomb for us to look backward at him. I think it's important to realize, like I said, he doesn't wrap things up all neat and tidy with Jesus ascended to heaven and removed from our situation. Mark's point is that Jesus' story is still going. He is still out there doing and redeeming and healing and bringing the kingdom of God. He's the pioneer out on the front. And the way of the cross does not stop. It keeps going for the disciple of Jesus. And we are now asked to be swept up in that story. We are now asked to take our part in that story. To proclaim the resurrection of God. We take on the spirit and the life of the cross and the mantle of discipleship. And we follow in his trail. And now we are doing and redeeming and healing and bringing the kingdom and we are proclaiming the story of Easter. You look at the world around us right now and the story of Easter seems to be something old, something predictable, maybe even something kind of irrelevant. You know, I mean, honestly, what, what good... Even, even if the unthinkable, even if the miraculous happened, what good could a 2,000-year-old story about a Jewish itinerant rabbi rising from the dead have to do with my situation today? Right? But to answer that question is to answer the so what of Mark's resurrection story. And to answer the so what about the power of Easter. 
It may look like tragedy or foolishness, and yet we've stayed around. We've witnessed this surprise ending that's not really an ending. But it's an invitation. And this is my question to you this Easter Sunday. What are you going to do with that invitation that Jesus has for you to take the resurrection story out of something that happened long ago and far away and bring it into your own here and now? What might that do for you if Jesus could resurrect you? Not someday after you die. I mean like right now. What if he could bring to life the parts inside of you that are dead? What if he could fix the parts of you that are broken? What if he could warm the parts of you that are cold? What if he could bring part hope to the parts of you that feel hopeless? What if? What if? Wouldn't that be the most amazing thing if it were true? whole bunch of people around here that believe that it is. I got a whole bunch of people around this world that know it is. And it has changed our existence. And so, for those of us who do believe, my question is this. How are you carrying and proclaiming the story of Easter? How are you going to take it? How are you going to carry it out into the world? See, this story stops abruptly because it is not really over. Because Jesus is still in the resurrection business. And he is inviting you to follow him into what lies ahead. And to bring those around you along for the next chapters of the story. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, thank you for your son. Thank you for his sacrifice that was a ransom for my soul to make me right with you. But thank you even more that the story did not end with his sacrifice, but that it ends with his triumph. That it ends with the unthinkable, that it ends with just the indescribable. That your son is alive now. And that your son is bringing me to life. And that your son is bringing us to life. And your son is bringing our world back to life again. And help us, Lord, please, not just to accept that fact and be brought back to life, but Lord, help us to accept the calling that we have to tell people to be a part of the story thank you Lord thank you so much that this is not a story that ends that this is a story that sweeps us up in it and carries us along and may we be carried closer and closer and closer to that day when you're going to finish all of this and you're going to make this right. And this new life that we see in your son is going to encompass all of us. Come soon, Lord.